Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is an encore presentation of a June 2008 episode of the Journal, featuring my conversation with former South Carolina Governor and U.S. Senator Ernest F. Fritz Hollings. Hollings died on Saturday, April the 6th, 2019, at the age of 97. With me in the studio today is Senator Ernest Hollings, who for 60 years has been a public uh, figure in South Carolina life, history, and politics. And he has written a new book, and it's called um, Making Government Work. And I want to, first of all, welcome you to the show. Good to be with you. And we will talk about your book, but I want to talk about you some, because you were a young cadet at the Citadel when the war, World War II came along. That's right. And... Um, what did you and a lot of your classmates end up doing? Well, graduation was on a Saturday at uh, 12 noon, and at 4 o'clock we had a little house party over in Somerville, and I got my orders, and uh, whoopee, <laughs> I was the first to get my orders for the following week to be at Camp Stewart. It wasn't Fort Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just being developed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there the following week, and... Uh, by the end of the year, uh, I was on the way, and by January of 43, uh, we were in uh, North Africa, Azu, mm-hmm. North Africa. One of the things that, that in looking at, at South Carolina history is your cohort, the group of young men who went to war in World War II, you came back to South Carolina, and no matter who you were, if whether you're talking about you or you're talking about Mr. Briggs over in Clarendon County, you all decided you really wanted to make South Carolina a better place. Oh, yeah. We were behind the curve in South Carolina, and all of us veterans had been from Africa to VE Day. I was in Austria, and so it was a three-year tour, and we were lucky to get back, and now we wanted to they sort of catch up ball with North Carolina. They had passed their sales tax, for example, in, in 1936. Mississippi had passed it in 1933, but we had no schools for white or colored. Well, the, the predecessor to the Budget and Control Board sent out a, uh, a survey to soldiers. I don't know whether you—not all soldiers got it, but it's interesting that almost unanimously the young men in uniform, and may have a few women because they— couldn't discriminate according to uh, to gender when they sent out to the army. Came back and said, "We've got to have better schools for for South Carolina boys and girls. Got to have better schools. We're not doing the job." That's right. And uh, we were all veterans, and we didn't have a national party or much of a state party to argue about or cater to. Uh, we were all uh, had our own ideas, and we'd argue things out and. To, deliberate, debate, and uh, settle and, and move. And uh, uh, that was when government worked, and it worked that way uh, when I first got in in 1966 at the federal level, but it's now at a Mexican standoff. Well, when you were in South Carolina politics, everybody was a South Carolinian first. That's right. And uh, I think it's interesting when you talked about how you were an accidental politician, because when you, you came back, you went to law school, went to work with your uncle, and he told you not to get sidetracked into politics. That's and then, right. And then what happened? Well, by September, I had been accepted at the University of Virginia Law School. But I got back uh, on uh, Thanksgiving evening, on a Thursday evening. I hadn't seen Mother in three years. And early uh, Friday morning, we were in Dean Nelson Frierson's Dean of the Law School's office uh, begging as a veteran to get in, he said, oh, no, the school started in September and everything else like that. My uncle was influential, and he argued a little bit more, and you had to give the veteran a chance. And he finally said, well, look, if you want to audit the classes, you're not a student, but if you audit the classes and take the exams in January uh, and, and you pass them, I'll give you credit. And that's what we did. I spent all Christmas holidays, Sarah Leverett would open up the library, and uh, all the uh, fellow students, uh, they, we looked out for each other. We were all veterans, and uh, that's what we did. Uh, we briefed all the cases. I took the exams, and by January, I was through a semester. By May, I was through a year. By August, we'd marched on the legislature and had summer sessions. I was through a year and a half, and by the following August, I was through three years of law school. 
And I was on a fast track and uh, out trying cases. The law is a jealous mistress. You, you don't want to fool with politics. If you want to ruin a lawyer and not be a good lawyer, then you'd get in politics. Well, let's, let's talk about marching in the legislature because that was interesting. During the war, the university was, was having three full semesters so you, people could accelerate graduation rates. That's right. And there was talk about discontinuing that after. Admiral Smith, he wanted to discontinue it because he was president of the university and they were trying to save money and everything else like that. And uh, we, all of us veterans, marched on the legislature and uh, uh, I can see B- Bucky going, Orville Rogers, Claude Sapp, uh, John West, uh, we, Hugo Sims from Orangeburg. We all marched and we changed their minds. Well, you know, it's interesting because Admiral Smith didn't want to do much for the veterans anyway. He's the one that, that put the veterans in substandard housing, had classrooms. You got it. Admiral Smith just thought, all oh, this veteran thing is going to pass, and so we'll just treat them like second-class folks, and that's pretty much what he did. Yeah. Even though he was a military man. Uh, that's exactly right. Well, the admirals didn't think much of privates, and we were all <laughs> privates in the law school. <laughs> so... After you went to work with you went to your uncle with your uncle's firm there in Charleston. Right. After giving you that lecture about the law being a jealous mistress, he then told you to go run after that mistress. Well, uh, one of the law partners was David S. Uh, Rocky Goldberg, and Rocky was a wonderful lawyer, a wonderful individual, very popular. And they knew him in the city, and he could carry the box in the city. But when it got up to North Charleston. Uh, just bluntly, they'd say, we're not taking any Goldberg. We don't know him. And he'd lost twice, barely losing. And he was going to lose a third time, they all say it. I knew nothing about politics and wasn't interested in the blooming thing. And so they finally said, well, rather than Rocky and the firm having a third loss, uh, Fritz, you, you go ahead and run. You don't know the magistrates. You don't know the county. You've been off at the war and the law school and the Citadel and uh, at least you'll meet the magistrates and they'll know you and uh, you'll know the county better. And so on that premise, I was given $100 for $100 worth of cards and I went out uh, campaigning door to door. $100 worth of cards. That's right. And I can remember those from, from the 50 and Southern politics, like the size of a business card with, with your That's little right. postage stamp on it and a few things of Fritz Holling stands for. That's right. That's right. Conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Democrat and I was conservative. And what happened when you began to go around the county? Well, uh, unfortunately, but fortunately, my father had uh, been in the paper business, uh, wholesale paper business. But uh, what he'd done is print the names on the bags for the corner groceries and all the Germans uh, had the corner groceries, the Belmers, the Rukheimers, the Hockmeyers, the Hasselmeyers, the Doshes, the Failers. And they'd call up in the Depression in the mid-30s and say, hey, Bubba, uh, I don't, they're not paying their grocery bills, so I don't have any money for those bags. Don't send them. He said, well, they got your name on them. Uh, I'll send them, and if you get some money, we'll settle up. And so that's what we did. Uh, we sent the bags, and we went out of business. And... Uh, when I walked into that Limehouse store on John's Island, uh, just across the uh, John's Island River, uh, he, he looked at me. I said, Mr. Limehouse, I'm Fritz Hollings. I'm running for the state legislature, and I'd appreciate your consideration. And I can see him now, a big old tall fella, did his shoulders up and down and said, Hollands, Hollands, uh, uh, did you say Hollands? Do you know a Bubba Hollands? I said, yes, sir, that was my daddy. He he walked back and forth, and then he looked at me straight in the eye, and he said, if you're half as good as your father, you'll make a a good legislator. Put your cards right there on that cash register. Right, so every time somebody checked out, they got one of your cards. They got one of my cards, and I carried that box. And and that that happened all over the county, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, 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 my daddy elected me. I I wasn't gonna get elected, but I led the ticket. Seventeen candidates, and I led the ticket to seventeen. And never had any idea of getting elected. I just wanted to meet the magistrates. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Fritz Hollings about his latest book, Making Government Work, and Politics in South Carolina.
Well, I, I like I liked your story about the, the the box in North Charleston where they were lined up outside the high school gym. Oh yeah, and then they let you inside. I didn't know you were supposed to be in campaign at polling places. Well, <laughs> well, that's the rule is it wasn't there a rule against it at it that particular time. Okay, and Coley Joe Moss, Coley Moss, everybody knew that he ran the box. So I got up early and I got coffee with him. Uh, and it, uh, every time he had coffee up there early Monday morning in his group. And so he got to know me, and I was a hard worker, and that's what he respected. And he said, come on in here. And I ducked inside the gym just as he was clearing off the line and, and, and closing the door. And then we had long lines inside. Mm -hmm. And I went up and down those long lines very quietly and very discreetly. And uh, it was after 9 o'clock. <laughs> when I finally got through campaigning, I got in there at 10 o'clock. And all the other candidates had met at our old law library. And they said, you leading the ticket, you leading the ticket. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, in fact, I nominated Lionel K. Leg. Mm -hmm. He was a senior member in age and experience. And so uh, the leader of the ticket, the next two times I led it again, and I took the chairmanship. But I nominated Lionel uh, as chairman. I said, you know, the legislature better than me. I never expected to get elected. Yeah, that was the tradition, is that the person getting the, the largest number of votes was chairman yeah, of the delegation. he was the chairman, that's right. Of, of, of the delegation. Yeah. And for our listeners out there who are a little bit younger, Senator, these were the days when Slates for the legislature were elected countywide. That's right. They were not single-member districts. That's exactly that did, right. That didn't take place till the 1970s. And I, I can remember putting uh, a penny on countywide, one cent on countywide, for a school in Oindor. You could put 100 mills in Oindor and, and not get a good lunchroom, much less a school. <laughs> and so countywide, we looked out for each other and everything. Mm -hmm. We owed it. It was a responsibility. Creighton Frampton is the one that took me uh, to that freedom school uh, uh, down the Mathis Ferry Road uh, where that Mrs. Simmons, mm -hmm. African-American school for two classes, one about 42 and another one about 45 on that cold winter day after the election. And uh, he said, this is it. Uh, she's got to teach both classes uh, they were orderly. Uh, there wasn't any trouble and everything else like that. But he says, we got to do something about it. He says, the white schools are not much better. And I found that out. The graduating class, uh, they paid a teacher only $1,296. A white teacher, $1,296. The black teacher only got $500 mm -hmm. for nine months. But the graduating class at Winthrop College... Uh, in 1950, went in mass over to uh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. they got a better pay. So our investment in Winthrop and getting good teachers didn't pay off. Mm -hmm. It worked to the benefit of North Carolina. When you came to the legislature, you were a pretty precocious young representative. Well, we, we all worked together and had a good time. Uh, uh, we knew everybody and everybody uh, worked together and what have you. We didn't have buildings. Uh, all we had was the capital. And uh, you'd hang around in, in the hotel uh, lobby or something at night and got to know each other and everything else of that kind. We didn't have any offices, any telephones, or anything else like that. That was like the, that. the old Wade Hampton Hotel right across the street, right? That's right. The Wade Hampton Hotel. We had the Columbia Hotel. I had a $15 a night. Uh, it was the solicitor who helped uh, Gedney Howe Sr., Mm -hmm. He helped write the legislation. We didn't have the le I put in the bill for the legislative council, but uh, the solicitors uh, ran the uh, and wrote the legislation for us newcoming legislators that didn't know anything about legislation. Mm -hmm. And that's where I knew John Spratt Sr., because mm -hmm. he was a solicitor up there in York, mm -hmm. and uh, he ran my campaign for lieutenant governor up mm -hmm. there in York. That's why I, but John Spratt Jr. is the smartest. Congressman, we got. Yeah. I mean, yeah. John, John and I were at Davidson together. Is that right? Oh, yes. Oh, Davidson. Yeah. Is, you know, that's Dean Rusk. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that's the finest uh, academic. But Furman's caught up with it. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David Shine. I'm a Furman friend. Hadn't quite. <laughs> yeah, David Shine. That's right. Yeah. 
few years ago, I had a very interesting telephone call because it involved you. And this was when our current lieutenant governor was had just been elected for the first time. And his staff was so excited that he, he was going to be the youngest person ever to hold the office. And I had to tell them I was sorry that they were mistaken, that Ernest F. Hollings from Charleston was the youngest person ever elected lieutenant governor of yeah, South Carolina. That's right. I mean, you moved up pretty fast. I did. Uh, we we had friends in there, and uh, we, we were getting legislation. Uh, we had the anti-lynch bill. Uh, we cleaned up the Uniform Support of Dependence Act. Uh, we were marching on the state hospital, Bull Street. Uh, you got to educate people. We don't have any time to educate. We just take a poll, and if it doesn't show good in the poll, uh, you, you can't bring people around to need uh, for increasing taxes. I mean, we're running horrendous deficits now. We're adding $4 trillion in eight years to the debt. But it's going to take some education. But you, ha- you had time to work on these things, the state hospital and the sales tax and uh, the anti-lynch bill. They didn't all pass, bam, bam. Uh, but everything either gets a vote or doesn't get a vote right now. That's the trouble. The government's not working. Well... Government did work back in in the 50s and 60s. Part of it may have been um, a different atmosphere. You mentioned that that the members of the General Assembly were South Carolinians first. That's right. And they looked out for the interests of, first of all, everybody. You just didn't represent the city of Charleston. You represented all of Charleston County. Oh, that's right, yeah. And everybody on the delegation represented Charleston County. Today, somebody represents District 62 or District 98 or House District 92, and that's all they think about pretty much. Yeah, well, well, as governor, for example, I was bringing industry into the Piedmont. Uh, uh, you don't open up a bank except across the street from another bank. Mm. And the industry uh, weren't going down to Charleston where they had organized labor in the paper mill and organized labor in the Navy Yard. They wanted to get away from organized labor and as a right-to-work state. They wanted to get next to the textile industry. And that, that's what GE said, uh, uh, Colonel uh, Bob Stevens. He, he was on the... Uh, Stevens Textiles, and mm-hmm. he was also on the GE board. And I'll never forget when we got that GE plant, and still up there, and the highest paying plant in South Carolina today is General Electric in Greenville. Mm-hmm. And at that particular time, I never can see that boy, Jim Walker, who wrote for the Greenville News. He said, uh, Wait a minute, uh, Mr. Secretary, Secretary Bob Stevens, he said, you came down here for an abundance of labor, but in the Wall Street Journal, it said there was a shortage of labor. Uh, and he started stuttering, so I stood up at the head table, and I said, they're going to leave J.P. Stevens Textiles and go to J.P. Stevens General Electric. for <laughs> well, we were higher pay, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's what they did. And uh, that was the trouble with technical training. They, they didn't want to lose their textile workers and and, and go to... Westinghouse and to General Electric and to DuPont and those kind of places. But then, ironically, Senator, you were one of the industry's greatest defenders in the United States Senate. Oh, yes. At that time, I had corporate America working with me. They wanted protection. They wanted to protect their investment and their employees and their production and everything else like that. Now, uh uh-uh, free trade, free trade. Get rid of the employees, get rid of the production. I can make way more money in China. And that's where they're all going right now. And you, you can get a bill up before the United States uh, Congress uh, on trade that uh, corporate America, the big banks, Wall Street, Business Roundtable, Chamber of Commerce, and all are opposed to you because they want to make a bigger profit. You look at the morning's paper and look at the pay of these executives and all they, the pay is going up, up in millions and millions. And then at the time of a vote to protect your investment, to protect your standard of living, to protect your production, it's your job or the jobs back home on a trade bill. And so you vote for your job. They got the money. You holler free trade, you get the money, and you get reelected. That's what's going on. They they don't even talk about trade. They talk about the economy and the stimulus and and consumption, but they don't talk about production. And and that's where we're going out of business in this country. You're absolutely, you know, right about the jobs going out. But but when you were bringing industry to the state, uh, and particularly when you wanted to start the technical education system, you did have opposition from the textile 
Oh, yeah. Worker. But like I say, you were the textile manufacturer's biggest supporter when it came to protection in the, in the national uh, government. That's right. Oh, I had a friend, and no better friend than Jim Self at Greenwood in Greenwood Mills. <laughs> uh, they didn't want any industry there, but I never forgot. All right, I said, that's Park Davis, which is now Capsule Jail. Uh, he, we finally let it in. Uh, but you see, they, they didn't want any competition in their operations. Uh, and they'd built the homes, the churches, even the hospitals, Greenwood mm -hmm. Memorial Hospital. Uh, no, I, I had a hard time with certain big executives. Uh, uh, I had to cancel out up, up in Gaffney and uh, that kind of thing. And, of course, in Greenwood now, that, that Park Davis and the way Greenwood Hospital has grown, medical service and medical supply and medical technology has become what has saved Greenwood's economy. Oh, yeah. There's so many interesting tidbits in your book. I mean, not, a lot of themes like making government work. But your conversation with Harry Truman about why Jimmy Burns was fired as yeah. Secretary of State, of course, that doesn't appear in either one of Mr. Burns's autobiographies or the biographies that have been of him since. They talk about the differences he had with Truman and so forth and so on. But I think you pretty well captured the personality of both individuals in that in that anecdote. Do you want to relate it for our listeners? Well, you know, uh, I, there's no uh, better governor that we had. We couldn't have gotten the sales tax without Jimmy Burns. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was our best governor. I always loved him. He, he was a wonderful fellow. And, of course, uh, Harry Truman, when I went down to make the Hibernian, Friendly Sons of St. Patrick, on March the 17th in Savannah, Georgia, in 62, I think it was, uh, you had the toast to the state uh, of Georgia, and I was responding to that. The toast to the United States was former President Truman, and that's the first time he'd been south since uh, South Carolina had, uh, in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi had gone for uh, J. Strom Thurmond as president of the United States, Dixiecrat ticket. So it was his first appearance, and I had sense enough to cut my talk to f less than five minutes. And I was getting up ready to leave to come back home. And he said, don't you want to come up and have a drink? And, uh, you know, the former president, I said, whoopee. <laughs> and we talked to 1.30 or 2 in the morning. And I asked him finally, because I'd heard all these stories from Governor Burns, because we had homes next to each other on the Isle of Palms, and I said, tell me about uh, Governor Burns and uh, his Secretary of State. I think you let him go. Oh, he says, I'll tell you about him. He says he goes over there to a conference in Vienna or whatever it is, and uh, he uh, talks to all the people and everything like that and comes back and reports to Lowell Thomas on the radio in New York. And so when he came to report to me the next morning at, uh, at the White House, I looked up and said, Jimmy, I, I heard all of this last night uh, in your interview with well, Lowell Thomas. I gave you the job, not Lowell Thomas. Now I think you ought to look for a new job with uh, Lowell Thomas. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And that, 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 on my honor, that's what Harry Truman <laughs> told me. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about um, smooth southern drinks. Uh, that, that has, of course, helped shape our history when uh, the technical education bill looked like it was going down to defeat. You and Senator Brown got together. Oh, that day I had a hard time. Uh, the true story is that I was at a Lutheran convention in Dayton, Ohio, with uh, Reverend uh, Heywood Epting, and we came out at about 11 o'clock at night from all the prayer session. And across the street from that particular church was a technical training, but it looked to me like an industry. And I said, well, let's go over here, Haywood, and see what they're manufacturing. And I went over there, and it was a technical training. Down home, we don't have anything like this. And so I said, if I ever can get in a position as governor or whatever, I'm going to get me this technical training. So sure enough, when I got elected, I called Mike DeSalle. And he said, send your team up. I'll take care of them. I'll put them up and get them all they want to know and everything else like that. Abe Ribicoff told me the same thing as governor of Connecticut. And, uh, of course, John West, Bob McNair, uh, Rex Scott, they, they all worked on the thing. And uh, 
they came back home, and we had trouble getting it through to the house. Now, old Sal Blatt, the speaker, he was with me. But uh, John Carlson, he, he thought he could fix that vote, but I uh, fixed the vote in the House. And they didn't expect, I found out later, to even pass it in the House because it didn't even have a term of office. And it got over to the Senate. Uh, I knew with John West that we had a show shot. It was a winner and it was going to pass. And then walks Muller Kreps and he says, your technical training is dead. They only got the, the deficiency appropriation bill tomorrow morning. Uh, they're in free conference now. And uh, they'll vote on it uh, tomorrow morning, and that'll be the end. Of I said, give me a bottle. And so I got a bottle of bourbon, and I went up that uh, back elevator right into the third floor above the lieutenant governor's office, and I put the bottle on the table. I said, let's have a little touch, Colonel. He said, oh, my, my, my. He said, you don't want that, the trading schools. We closed down the uh, area trade schools and those training schools. That's for the dummies. I said, oh, no. I said, Colonel, it's for the skills. And I said, I, I promised, and I went into uh, Jeff, Jeffrey's Chuck and Jacobs Manufacturing. I think Jacobs Manufacturing is still up there in Anderson County. And uh, he finally hemmed and hawed, and after a couple of drinks, he said, well, you can't make the governor a liar. How much do you want? I said, 368000 he said, we'll give you 250 and that's all you get, and don't start a program. I know what you're trying to do, and I'm going to cut you off. You're not going to do it, but I'll give you that to make you honest. We can't make the governor a liar, and that, that's how it got started. And that was Edgar Brown. That was Edgar Brown. That's exactly right. And uh, We had Stan Smith here in Columbia that headed it up. We had uh, directors like Tom Black Cat Barton up there at Greenville Tech. And we had a genius in Wade Martin. He's dead now, but Wade Martin would take those spreadsheets, and I'd get to Industrial Prospect, and he'd say, now, here's the hours, here's the hourly rate, and in six months or seven months, uh, you'll have 100 or 150 skilled workers, and you can put it in, and you'll be operating in the black by this time next year. You don't talk to the chairman of the board and the president. You find out who's got to get it up operating and in the black. And I found out who that fellow was, and I'd get him with mm -hmm. Wade Martin, and Wade would study his uh, production mm -hmm. and put out those spreadsheets. I've seen him do it many a time, and he, he, we were getting industry where the last year I finally beat Luther Hodges because he, he was the best. Mm -hmm. Luther Hodges, who was former governor of North Carolina. Yeah, he, he and I were lieutenant governors, and uh, his governor, Umster, died, and I used to always kid because there's no better fella and governor than George Bell Timmerman, but I always said, I always did too, but he wouldn't lay down. <laughs> George Bell never would uh, go across the street to the luncheon or anything. He thought it was undignified, so he would meet uh, and he would solicit, but uh, he wouldn't go out of the way because he thought that was undignified for the governor out there hustling, so I was always meeting with Bob Cooper, Mm -hmm. who was then the chairman of the development board, mm -hmm. and I said, a highly important matter's come up and the governor wanted to be here, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I did that for four years as lieutenant governor. That's where I got to know uh, the head of Duke Power and all the rest of them working for industry. Well, the modern development board, or now we have the Department of Commerce, really came into its being under your administration. Yeah, we spread it all over the state. Yeah. We weren't lawyers looking for clients. We were all looking out for the community yeah. and looking for industry. Yeah. And you got people like Bratton Davis involved. Oh, and, good gosh, yeah. And you, you mentioned Startup in the Black because I have I remember seeing some of those brochures that the development board put out. under, And it actually, there, there was one called Startup in the Black. Yeah. And it explained exactly what you said a, a few uh, Walter, minutes earlier. Walter Harper knew it. Uh, you see, they all educated me. I didn't know anything about mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Walter Harpers, the Wade Martins, I, I'd listen and learn from them, and uh, that's I. Then I'd go down on the Sunday at Plantation Society, and they got a had oh what a hundred plantations down there at Beaufort and the Low Country and over at Jasper County and everywhere else, Georgetown, and they'd have these brunches intermittently at eleven o'clock, and these plantation owners and executives of industry were in a. Uh, twine. Uh, I had a Dun and Bradstreet. If you found 
uh, fellow on one board, he, he was on three other boards. Mm -hmm. And so I would work them. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I went up with uh, David Luke to the Irvin Trust Company on the 32nd floor of the Irving Trust, number one, Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And I, I got uh, 14 industries out of that breakfast mm -hmm. that we had up there. I mean, we, we kept working them. Well, and you had people, you, you mentioned some of the local folks like the Lafitte's and the Lights is over there in, in oh, Allendale. And, and they, they were the best, Jasper. everybody. Uh, they worked together. And of course, we took the first trips to Latin America. When Luther Hodges was going to Europe, I went down to Latin America. I found out that Caracas, Venezuela uh, was 300 miles, 350 miles closer to Charleston than it was to New Orleans. And I said, why in Latin America didn't it come up to the port of Charleston rather than the port of New Orleans? Mm -hmm. And on that premise, uh, I went down there and Peter Grace mm -hmm. uh, had cryovac up in uh, Spartanburg County and he also had a herd of cattle at Utahville. Mm -hmm. And so... Panagra Airlines. He owned Latin America. He had the airline. He had the industry and everything else. And he gave me Jim Stebbins, uh, Estebins, it was in uh, Spanish. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I sent Ernie Wright, my industrial secretary, with Estebins to set up all the meetings. So when we hit uh, Buenos Aires, we hit uh, the Port of Santos in Brazil, or San Paulo, or Rio, and uh, Caracas. Uh, we had everything laid on good. And uh, we got down there and started getting the industry from Latin America, and then and they, they bought my—I only got 15000 a year as governor. That was my pay. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money for an airline ticket, so the, uh, the Hugh Lanes and the uh, Jim Selfs and the Bob Smalls and uh, the Perk Gregories and, uh, and the Hootie Johnson, they, they, they bought my ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and Ernie Wright's ticket. Well, uh, those businessmen understood that you have to invest money in order to make money. Yeah, that's good, and you got to protect your investment. Mm -hmm. And every country does that. There's no such thing as free trade. It's trade, but it's against the rules politically now to protect the investment, protect the production, protect the jobs. Mm -hmm. Free trade, free trade. You're supposed to not compete in globalization. That's nonsense. Globalization is nothing more than a trade war. And in trade, Walter, that's more powerful than the military now. You, you say, well, what in the world is the Sixth Fleet and the atom bomb? In foreign policy, it's the economy, stupid it's not the military. We puffing and blowing about how we going to spread democracy. You can't force-feed democracy in the Mideast or anywhere else. In Afghanistan, you think those warlords are going to stop growing poppies <laughs> where they're making a fortune <laughs> and have one man, one vote? It's, it's child's talk. I mean, are you killing Americans for that? Uh, I'd get, get out. I, I said this on the floor of the United States Senate back four years ago. I had my Cambodian moment. I, uh, the most fascinating fella who served in the Army and the uh, Navy and in the Marines uh, was Mike Mansfield. And Mike Mansfield was the dean of Far Eastern Studies at the University of uh, Montana. And uh, he had his Cambodian moment. As majority leader, he opposed the individually, the, the war in Vietnam, and he'd write a note to President Lyndon Johnson. But then when he'd come back after a conference, he'd support President Lyndon Johnson as majority leader, his policy. And he, he did that when Nixon came on. There were 27 notes. But when we went into Cambodia, he finally went public and snapped and met the uh, radio and TV outside, and he said, this... War in Vietnam has been wrong from the get-go, and I've opposed it and, and explained why. And two days later, from his best friend in Montana, Dear Mike, as you know, we, mar uh, we buried Tom, my son, uh, last uh, yesterday, and I came home to turn on the TV to hear you say that Vietnam was a mistake from the get-go. Why didn't you speak sooner? On May the 1st, 2003, we had exactly 341,000 troops in Iraq. R Rumsfeld said, we're not going to occupy. By August, they had cut back to about 140 or 160,000, and by January, they were down to 101,000. 
But when they got down and cut at the end of the summer, I got up and said, we're not securing the country. Uh, we're not sealing the borders. Uh, Iran and all is coming in, and uh, we're just waiting for three religions to get together. I said, I helped liberate Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia 67 years ago, and uh, they have yet to opt for democracy in the Muslim world. Stronger than freedom and democracy is religion. And uh, we're waiting for these religions to get together. And I said, quit. It's not worth the life of an additional GI. And uh, we got a political policy as called a surge. You're putting in 30,000 when you need, as a military policy, 300,000 to seal the borders and everything else. We cut down on the casualties, paying off uh, Saddam's uh, Republican guards. Uh, we're paying them uh, $300 a month to 90,000 uh, Sunnis, uh, sons of Iraq, they call them now. So the CIA is going around paying them off, and we're trying to keep on top of Sadia down there in Basra in the south. And the Kurds have got their own army and everything else like that, and we're going from town to town and cleaning up uh, and having fewer casualties, and they're hollering, ooh, the surge is working, the surge is working. Uh-uh. It's not working. You're not getting politically anywhere except making Iran more powerful and making us less powerful, less influential. We're creating terrorism rather than eliminating it. And it ought to stop immediately. Let's, let's, let's come back. To well, South Carolina. To, to South Carolina, yes. I sir. agree with Let, you. Let's come back because two years ago I, I interviewed Cokie Roberts. Oh, yeah. She's, yeah. Who... Uh, is a, is a is a wonderful southern lady out of Louisiana, and yeah. she she summers every every year at at uh, Pauly's Pauly's Island. And I had her on my show, and we were talking about the nature of American politics. Yeah, this was a couple of years ago, and she said, "You know, I really am going to miss your two senators." And I said, "Well, they're they're fine men." She, I said, "Why are you going to miss them?" She said, "Because whether you agree with them or not." they brought character to the office. And she said, they weren't blow-dried. They weren't, you know, they weren't oatmeal. Uh, they were willing to speak and uh, had some personality. In the beginning, we went stump-speaking, and we went from county to county, uh, one in the morning and one in the evening. And, and we jumped on each other and everything. Ooh, you can't do that. That's negative. Poly negative, my fanny. I mean, <laughs> that's the way you get elected. You bring out not the good of the other opposition, but what he's made a mistake on and everything, and you have to defend your own record and everything like that. Well, of course, as, as you well know, the, the Barnwell Ring was, was supposed to be the political kiss of death in South Carolina. Strom, when he ran for governor, ran yeah. against the Barnwell Ring. Yeah. And when you ran for office, there was a pretty nasty car and called you the, the baby of the barn will ring. The bottle baby of the, the bottle barn will ring. The bottle baby. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they had me when diapers with a little bottle as a baby in that cartoon because uh, they had those liquor drinkers down in uh, Charleston and nothing in Bible Belt up there in Piedmont and everything else. And we talked about politics being a, a simpler time. You, you mentioned uh, you and, and Pete C. used to have sort of a dinner club with Senators oh, from yeah. both, both sides of the aisle. Yeah, every Wednesday night. And we'd take potluck at another senator's home, and we didn't have any ties or jackets, and we, we got on each other what happened that day and uh, the votes and how they're going to vote later on and everything like that. And, and, and we respected each other and everything else like that. Now it's the national parties have taken over, and uh, whoever, I was just talking about a congressman running, and I said, well, the, the opposite party is going to have four or five million against him, so he's going to have to raise some money. It's not his ideas or anything else. The parties are into a standoff, and unless and until you limit the money, you're not going to limit the campaign. Yeah. Campaigns go on eternally. Well, unfortunately. That's right. Uh, you know, it's, it's ha having spent sometime in Europe, not a great bill, but having been in England during an election cycle, been in Austria during an election cycle, you know, they announced the campaign, it's over in a month. That's right, over in a month, and they vote on a Sunday when you got time to vote. And I tried my best to vote on a Saturday, uh, but they don't want our blacks to vote. Poor African Americans are doing all the work on a Tuesday, 
Uh, they can't stand in line and be late for work or get off in time before it closes and that kind of thing. And that, that's why we just, they talk about the African-American vote, but it's tough to get them out because they're working. Well, and of course, it's, it's poor people, not just poor African-Americans, but poor poor folks of any any color. That's right. Um, but the poll, our polls do at least stay open from 7 to 7 now. I mean, or at least till, from 8 to 7, they're, they're, they're open. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's hard. It's work, work, working people, uh, I can go vote and you can go vote, but I can tell you now we don't have near the people that turn out because they're busy. Well, I will tell you, this, tell you, this is a personal story. My, when I went to register to vote in Alabama back in 1964 when I turned 21, Alabama then had a law is that if you wanted to register to vote, a registered voter had to take you to the registrar to certify who you were. And it was my grandmother. She went down. She was, first of all, irritated that her grandson just couldn't walk in and register. But, of course, this is what you were talking about, poor folks and workers. Not only do you have to get off from work, get out, you have to get a registered voter to, had yeah. to get a registered voter to, uh, uh, and then by that time, the federal marshals had already taken over the voting al- apparatus in Alabama. And the registrar, I signed up, and he said, and they, he had two boxes under his counter, and you had to pick it just at random. Yeah. Well, I picked out a test I had to take. It was over a page. It gave about three-quarters of it was a, a quote from the Consumer Code of the state of Alabama, and I was supposed to write an ex- explanation of what that was <laughs> <laughs> in order to, to – I mean, clearly this has been – this was one of those, t- you know, literacy tests that had been designed. Well, uh, women, uh, when I first got on, <laughs> women could only vote as a result of the – Federal Constitution, the state constitution said white male electors and Brown against Baskin did away with the white part, but it still said male. And one of the first resolutions I put in was to knock that word male out so women could serve on the juries because they couldn't serve on the juries without my resolution. And I, 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 I got the women to serve on the juries. <laughs> well, I mean, a- after all, before that, you had to protect the women, right? That was the concept. They shouldn't, oh, yeah. they shouldn't oh, yeah. hear That's all right. those things. That's, That's right. They shouldn't hear all things. But when you were running the, your first campaign, you still mentioned the cost of campaigns today. Yeah. You had, your, you had $100 for... The, ca- the cards. Oh, the- and that's all. No headquarters, no radio, no TV, no yard signs, no focus groups, no push poles, uh, uh, no uh, consultants. Uh, if you run for public office now, you got to hire everybody. You got to have all kind of their money because the other side is going to have all kind of money. And Democrats are poor in South Carolina. I mean, uh, we just had an election the other day and they didn't have any Democrats to vote for. Uh, down in Charleston. I mean, you, you had had Henry Brown and Lindsey Graham and everything else like that. The Republican Party has been organized for years, but the Democratic Party has got very little organization and very little participation in it. And so now, uh, as a senator uh, running for re-election the seventh time in 1998, that's 10 years ago, that's 30000 a week each and every week. So how much money did you have to raise for your for last six camp? years, eight and a half million. And if Walter Edgar wanted to, you popular and well-known, but I'd tell you, Walter, they're going to have $10 million or $12 million against you, so you're going to have to raise first $10 million in order to get your ideas and get any kind of credibility out on the trail. I'll stick to radio, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, one of the things with our, our, new, our new voting machines like here in Richland County, if somebody is unopposed, you know, in the primary, we don't have the chance to scratch people like we used to. We yeah. don't have the complete ballot. One, one of the things that my, my late father-in-law used to over in Lexington County, he'd go, he said, I scratched every one of those jokers. <laughs> 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 they may not have had any opposition in the general election, but they weren't going to get, you know, they might have so many votes in the, in the voters cast in the precinct, but they were going to be shy a certain number. I, I got everything for Lexington County. In fact, that's, that's what Knox Abbott said. He said, wait a minute, Hollings has gotten more than Timmerman. I got Horseman Doll and Allied Chemical and uh, August Camera, and I just got industry upon industry for Lexington County, and I used to carry it. I'm a Lutheran, 
mm-hmm. and uh, the Lutheran home and, and Pastor Webb and all the rest of them were all for me. And I used to carry that county. I can't carry it now. All the Republicans have moved over there and they just pulled the Republican lever. Yeah. So I have to make it up in Richland County. (laughs) Senator, I hate it, but we're about to run out of time. And thinking historically over your your more than 60 years, your six decades of of public service, what advice would you have for a young man or a young woman who wanted to get into politics today? For Lord's sake, get into it, but get some money. Make a living because it's expensive. Uh, In other words, it's still... I shook hands with the... uh, county lawyer, uh, an African-American named Dawson, I think his name is, uh, just last week. He made 400,000 billable hours as a county attorney. I never made more than 154,000. I had to keep up a home and keep up in Washington and one back home and everything else like that. So make your money first. And then when you get some uh, financial stability, because it costs you to live in Washington, you don't make a living up there. Uh, and you got to keep it going, then run, because I'm lucky. Uh, all my lawyer friends that uh, made money and everything else, if they're not dead, they're out looking for another golf course or another kind of drink, whereas <laughs> I, uh, I hustle and read the Financial Times and the New York Times and the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal to find out what decadence going on, Time and Newsweek and mm-hmm. what have you. I have a good time because... I'm, I'm excited. I'm interested. And that's why I wrote the book, because I, I can see exactly what it'll be. you got to untie the knot of money. Once you untie the knot of money, then you can uh, limit K Street and the lobbyists. You can control the 527. You can control the national parties. You'll have time to talk to your staff and talk to fellow senators. Uh, You'll have time to put in legislation to make it profitable for corporate America to make a profit in America. They're leaving now not because they're greedy, of course they're making a bigger profit, and that's looked upon as greed, but it's not that reason at all. The reason they're leaving is they've got to leave because if they don't go to China and continue to work their own people, they go broke. And so you've got to make it profitable under Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, not the president and not the Supreme Court, but the Congress shall regulate commerce or trade, both domestic and foreign. And we're not doing our duty up there in Washington. And until you untie, untie that money knot, you're not going to get it done. Okay. Senator Ernest Hollings, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you very much, Walla. Next on today's program, we will listen to an excerpt of an interview I did in 2017 with Dr. David Ballantyne, author of New Politics in the Old South, Ernest F. Hollings in the Civil Rights Era. David, I think we could, could go on, but why don't, why don't you just kind of wrap things up? Because again, one of your chapter titles might say it all, A Common Sense Realistic South Carolina Democrat. Certainly. That's the way Hollings tried to and successfully presented himself as a politician. He made these troubled and small accommodations in the 1960s and early 70s on race with African-American constituents. But he did emerge as a fairly moderate politician by the early 1970s as a forerunner of politicians like Jimmy Carter. Although he wasn't a New Deal liberal, he didn't see government doing huge things. He thought that government had a role to play in improving people's lives. And so he was very different in his thinking from modern anti-government strains in politics. I mean, he really believed that government could be made to work. Certainly. And when he wrote a memoir, um, he in fact called it Making Government Work. So Hollings, although there is this baggage, as with all of these Southern politicians who come from the civil rights and pre-civil rights eras, he is a policy-oriented politician. We haven't spoken about it today, but he was involved in uh, environmental preservation efforts as well. Or you could write a book about Hollings and the budget or Hollings and campaign finance reform. So there there are a lot of ways that you could look at Hollings' career. I've chosen uh, to look primarily at his emergence from this one-party segregationist Democratic Party in the 1950s and 60s to this more New South Democratic, more friendly to racial minorities mindset 
uh, from the late 60s and early 70s. And in this, he's successful. He develops a personal constituency that re-elects him for decades in South Carolina to the point where when he retires, he is the last high-profile Democrat in the state. And now, uh, 12 years later, it doesn't seem especially close that South Carolina is going to be electing Democrats for governor or senator anytime soon. It's been a sea change in South Carolina politics, and you chronicle that change beautifully. David Ballantyne, the author of New Politics in the Old South, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Today's program is an encore presentation of a June 2008 episode of The Journal, featuring my conversation with former South Carolina Governor and U.S. Senator Ernest F. Fritz Hollings. Hollings died on Saturday, April the 6th, 2019, at the age of 97. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Having a conversation with Fritz Hollings is not just a look at the way things used to be, it really gives you an insight into how things used to work. Maybe things were better in a certain way in an earlier era, before the days of push poles and K Street. It was a simpler time, but it was a time when South Carolinians thought more of their state and their community than they did of party loyalty. At least that's the way Senator Hollings feels. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.